This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Our guest today is Navy Lieutenant Kai Cumston, a native of Hawaii and a 2012 graduate of the United States Naval Academy. A surface warfare officer, he served on the USS Elrod and the USS Sirocco and was the recipient of the Admiral Arleigh Burke Surface Warfare Operational Excellence Award. He earned a master's degree in history from George Mason University and has been teaching in the History Department at the Naval Academy since 2017. Kai, welcome to Preble Hall. Thank you for inviting me. What is maritime irregular warfare? Now, the definition is extremely varied. Um, There's a lot of different subsets of it. Um, I define it down, uh, I take it from a RAN uh, study, and they define it as operations involving at least one irregular actor or tactic that aim to shape the maritime environment in at least one of three ways, to prevent supplies or personnel support from reaching an adversary, to increase the capability of partner naval and maritime forces, or to project tailored U.S. power ashore to directly confront adversary forces. When did the term emerge? The specific term had really started to be formed around the start of the war on terror. I mean, it's always been around, but really people started to codify it around that time. Why do we need to understand it? Maritime warfare is, it's extremely complicated. It's, uh, there's a lot of different aspects of it, you know, counter narcotics and law enforcement play into it, um, as well as civil affairs, um, and quite frankly, counterinsurgency as well, as well as uh, other more thought conventional tactics can all be factored in. Um, they're all kind of intermingled, which is another reason why the definition is, is uh, debated over. Who in the Navy deals with irregular warfare? So typically it's uh, Naval Special Warfare Command, uh, so uh, SEALs and uh, Special Warfare Combatant Craft Crewmen. But really, if you look at the history of maritime irregular warfare, it's everyone. Uh, everyone in some way has done it, whether submariners or surface warfare officers or, or, or even aviators uh, have, have all played a hand in it. So that raises a, a good question, since this is a naval history podcast. Mm-hmm. There was a 2012 RAND Corporation study, and I'm assuming it's the same one mm-hmm. you cited, um, and it's called Characterizing and Exploring the Implications of Maritime Irregular Warfare. And it's it's interesting because it in its historical chapter, it starts at Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But you would argue that irregular warfare goes far to the far founding, back. really. Um, yes. When are the when's the first time we you think that we were using a reg, maritime irregular warfare? Uh, in my class, uh, for the United States specifically, uh, obviously I start in the American Revolution. Um, there, there's two main people I really uh, highlight a lot. The first one is John Barry, um, so one of the founders of the U.S. Navy, um, and it involves him boarding uh, a ship uh, that is being shot at by the British, and he's taking off powder. Uh, and leftover powder uh, to supply the revolution. And he sees the World Marines in a rowboat coming towards him, and he gets the bright idea, you know, I'm going to turn this into a bomb. And he, he kind of leaves it behind the, for the British, and they come on board, and it's got this spectacular explosion. But really, honestly, the, uh, the number one person is John Paul Jones. Why is that? Um, so many reasons. He, uh, you know, his theories on prosecuting the enemy overseas, you know, where they're not, uh, away from home shores to, to bring them closer to defend the homeland. Um, but really his most famous is, uh, is the Whitehaven raid. Um, and so one of the, one of the books I use in this class, 
um, which you know is a professor here uh, that teaches uh, Commander Armstrong. And uh, he just recently wrote a book called Small Boats and Daring Men. Um, phenomenal book. Um, but Whitehaven is, is kind of the big one that everyone talks about, where uh, he lands in, uh, in Whitehaven to, to do this raid. Uh, he's from the where, area. Where's, where's Whitehaven? Uh, Whitehaven's up in Scotland. And so he's from the area. He was born and raised there. Um, he, he does it for a lot of different reasons. You know, he knows the terrain. He knows where the forts are. Uh, and another big reason is, uh, I think at least, and other people have said this, and, you know, he wants to make a statement. And part of maritime irregular warfare is, is psychological warfare. And, you know, you have this brand new nation of the United States, and you have someone come back to his hometown to do a raid there, right? That's a very big statement to let people know that I'm not British anymore. You know, I'm, I'm an American. And, you know, again, psychological warfare is big into that. Was it successful? Overall, it was not very successful. It, uh, they, of the 300 or so ships that were in port that he could have burned, uh, they come across logistical issues. Uh, they only get about three, uh, three or four of them. Um, they get the biggest one. They, they're, they're able to spike the guns of the fort. Um, but overall, they leave not as well off as they could have done. Um, and this is, again, this is like the building of this kind of character of, of maritime irregular warfare. Does it have the impact of drawing uh, British forces away from the colonial coastline uh, to uh, closer into the, the British Isles? Oh, absolutely. There, there are ships withdrawn from the, from the American front. Um, militias are called up all across the countryside um, that begin patrolling, looking for the pirate John Paul Jones. Um, and so... It, it, it has a lot bigger effects than what the actual raid accomplished. Let's talk about a few uh, cases prior to the American Revolution. And in your class, you talk about uh, it's the uh, segment of Singeing the King of Spain's Beard. <laughs> yes. It's a great title. Um, what was Greek fire? Uh, Greek fire? Uh, so I, I go... I'm supposed to start the class in the age of sail. Go a little bit farther back with that one, um, but Greek fire is this uh, this weapon employed by the by the Byzantines. Uh, that there's a lot of myths surrounding it that it burns on water, and the only thing that could put it out is uh, like three day old urine. And when you throw fire on it, it grows bigger. Um, but either way, it, it provides this very very big technological advantage um, that the extremely small Byzantine navy has over any of their their enemies. Why'd you use uh, Drake's raid at Cadiz? Who, who was Drake? Uh, Sir Francis Drake, a, uh, a very, very famous privateer or pirate, depending on, on, on who you, uh, you think. Uh, but he starts his career off uh, as a privateer with the British. When was this? Oh, this was in the, got, uh, the uh, 1500s, around that time, right? The, uh, I don't have the exact mm-hmm. years in my head. Um, but he's very famous for multiple different raids. He's the uh, the second person to circumnavigate the world, the first Englishman to do it. Um, he do- he leads this very daring raid um, where the uh, the king of Spain is putting together this fleet, um, and this is about a couple years before the Spanish Armada, and he's putting it together in Cadiz. Uh, it's about fifty ships at the time, and Drake taking just about fifteen privateers sails right under the guns of the fort. Uh, and he he fights the Spanish in their in their own home turf, and he staves off this this eventual Spanish Armada for another year. Fire ships came in, I guess, after this. I mean, we have a model of a fire ship here at the Naval Academy Museum, yes. and uh, the way it's essentially designed is there's a V trough from uh, bow to stern, and then V troughs from port to starboard, and they would be filled with oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
how successful were these in, in, and what was their primary mission? I mean, aside from just being torched up. Honestly, they're they're really one of the very first terror weapons. Um, our first recorded instance of a fire ship is actually at the Battle of Red Cliffs in China, um, very, very far ahead of Europeans. Um, but the ship in general is just a tinderbox. It, it's wood, it's held together with tar, and there's ropes that are greased. Um, even without a dedicated fire ship, ships are just combustion devices waiting to go. And so a fire ship is basically adding more kindling to this fire. They would add um, kind of shoot trunks under the mast uh, in order to kind of direct the fire upwards. There'd be escape, purpose-built escape hatches in the rear for the crew to bail out. Um, one of the bigger things you don't think about is they have a rowboat behind for the crew, but it's held together with a chain because they noticed that if it was rope, it would burn away and they'd lose their boat. Um, but they're essentially terror weapons. Um, Drake uses it a uh, uh, battle with the... Um, Spanish Armada, uh, and overall, they physically do not do any damage. They, uh, they're they able to spot them, uh, but what it does is it breaks this Spanish formation. They're, they're scattered to the four winds. They're, there's complete chaos. They're overloaded with gear and troops, and the very, very good formation of Drake is able to pick them off at long range. And the the added effect, which uh, which happens later in that battle, is to avoid these fire ships, they, they cut away all their anchors. And after they, they fight this, uh, this unsuccessful battle against Drake, they decide that they're going to sail up north around Scotland uh, to avoid them and attack from a different direction. And they hit the North Sea and they hit the weather of the North Sea. And one of the first things they say is, we need to drop anchor. And they've cut away all their anchors to avoid this fire ship, which, which just further seals the fate of this fleet. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, good uh, depictions of fire ships in, in popular culture. The first time that I remember seeing one was as a kid, and it was an old 18, a 1950s movie starring Alec Guinness, you know, Obi-Wan mm-hmm. Kenobi. Uh, but it's called Damn the Defiant, and there is a scene of a fire ship in there. And then there's a more modern Horatio Hornblower series that was done about 20 years ago with uh, Ian Gruffold as, as um, Horatio Hornblower. And there is one episode of a fire ship if folks want to see mm-hmm. what those look like. Uh, what were the floating batteries of Gibraltar? So one of the, the big takeaways in this class, uh, I bring up a lot about leadership, but I also bring up a lot about technology. And sometimes the best times you learn are from failures. And the floating battery was this grand idea that the Spanish had during the Great Siege of Gibraltar. Um, And so those of you who don't know, uh, the Great Siege of Gibraltar is the largest land battle of the American Revolution. And it's not in the United States at all. It's against, uh, it's the Great Britain uh, under siege in the, the fortress of Gibraltar. And uh, they're sieging it for several months. They, they just can't break through this siege. And they come up with the idea to create essentially a floating battery. It, it's got guns only on one side. It's very large. It's wood packed with sand, packed with more wood, uh, with um, like old ropes over the side to dissipate the shocks of cannonballs and with water rolling over it to prevent uh, it burning. And it's this grand idea in, I, in the theory of it. And they build, uh, I think it's six, six to eight of them, and they bring them up in formation and just bombard Gibraltar. And uh, it's initially very successful. It keeps all of the troops pinned down. It's supposed to keep them bound, uh, pinned down for this grand Spanish-French assault. And Spanish land batteries run out of ammo, uh, which means uh, they can't get cover from the land batteries. And then one of their anchors breaks away, and they drift under the guns of the British. And the British eventually shoot it with hot shot. Uh, which is, you know, a, a cannonball that's been, you know, red hot in a furnace, and it's able to light one of these batteries on fire, and this battery goes up in a cataclysmic explosion that spreads to the next one and the next one and the next one. And so part of the things in this class is I do talk about failures a lot. Um, 
Yes. Are there other examples of maritime irregular warfare that you teach prior to the revolution, American Revolution? Um, really, Drake at Cadiz and Greek fire is it. Um, I, I didn't want to go too back. Uh, I could go back for hundreds and hundreds of years, and I'd just be lost in my own head. So we carry it forward to uh, the USS Essex under David Porter. Mm-hmm. Why is so the, the the Essex is a frigate? It's a sus- subscription frigate, yes. one of those frigates that are that are built uh, by cities or counties or states. They would local communities would raise the funds as they did with the USS Philadelphia and others. But why is a standard frigate considered uh, a maritime irregular warfare? So. Again, uh, one of the things I highlight in this class is sometimes irregular warfare can be uh, a conventional asset like a ship, and it's just used in a way or a tactic employed that the enemy just did not see coming, completely out of right field. Uh, and uh, the Essex is, is a prime example of that. It's, uh, it's, like you said, it, it's a frigate during the War of 1812. Um, it had a very, very specific battery, which... Uh, it, it consisted primarily, in fact, all of 32-pound carronades. And uh, a carronade is just a, a snub-nosed, short-range cannon um, to maybe go out 200, maybe 300 yards um, against normal 24-pounders or even long nines or 12-pound guns. It, it was completely outclassed. Why would you use those versus the long guns? Usually, frigates at the time used a combination of, of long-range guns and carronades for that close-end fight. Whoever the CO was of before Porter decided to put it all carronades, and he's trying to change it before the war begins. But right when the war begins, it's just not enough time, and he's forced to gun away with these these essentially just a ship full of shotguns. Is essentially all it is. Why does Porter decide to go where he does? Um, so he goes down south. He's supposed to meet up with two American ships. And they're not there, right? It's not like they can send emails to each other. Um, and so he, he comes to the conclusion that American ports are being blockaded. So he can go home and maybe, you know, die against a British ship. He can stay in the Atlantic and starve to death. Or maybe, just maybe, he can attack the British whaling fleet all the way in the Pacific where they're unguarded. Uh, and so this this hits the British completely by surprise. Um, and they're the, they're the major benefactor of the whaling industry yes. at this time in the 1810s, 1820s. Yes, very much so. Uh, and in fact, so, and really where it gets really irregular, is he goes down there and he starts taking ships. And uh, these merchants, they're not just merchants, they do have self-defense cannons on board. And in some cases, you know, better cannons, longer range cannons than him. And so he decides to get the right ideas. I, I use the term a parasite fleet, um, where he sends over some crew members on a captured ship, and he essentially commissions it uh, in his own fleet. And honestly, by the end of this, this whole Pacific campaign, he's got a fleet of 12 ships under his command um, that, that have, he's moved cannons around, he's moved personnel. In fact, uh, his, uh, his foster son, David Farragut, takes command of a, a ship they call the Essex Jr. And he was probably, what, 11 or 12 was, at this time? He was 11 years old, I believe, at this time, yes. Um, uh, the only, the first and only United States <clears throat> Marine to ever command a ship, First Lieutenant John Marshall Gamble, takes command of one of these ships because they're just they're running out of officers um, to do this. So he's losing officers and sailors with all these prize, mm-hmm. prize ships. Um, and that causes a problem eventually for Porter. It does eventually. Um, they, they kind of spread out to, to increase their effectiveness on the high seas. So it over time, it does eventually affect his effectiveness, and uh, he eventually pulls in a Valparaiso in Chile. 
Um, and uh, he is surrounded by two other British ships that have been trailing him for, for several months. And uh, they open up on him. And besides him only having 32 pounders, he's siphoned them off to his fleet. He's only got one other with him, as well as being low on crew. And he's, he's, he takes heavy casualties and he's forced to surrender eventually uh, at the end of this. Is there any indication of what impact his cruise to the South Seas or to the South Pacific and the British whaling areas had on, on either the British economy or with redistribution of, of uh, Royal Navy assets? Because we're, you know, again, uh, to go back to some of the movies, you remember Master and Commander, which mm-hmm. came out, I guess, about 17 years ago, 16, 17 years ago. And their job, they were a British ship. Uh, sorry, that was a, there was a French ship that they were chasing that was going to the South Pacific to attack British whaling. And, you know, you really get a sense this is where that uh, Patrick uh, O'Brien gets the idea for Master and Commander, and at least in the uh, the movie. I think that was a combination of a couple of books. But you get a real sense of, of why they were going there. Yes. In effect. And it's funny because in the movie it's a French ship, but the way the book is written, it's, it's an American ship. Uh, and they had to change it, obviously, for an American right. audience for the movie. Um, but the, and they even mention in that in that movie that oh it's a French ship of American design right. that's how they, they kind of do a, a, a toast to it. Um, he he there is no assets uh, British assets when the war begins in the area. In fact, uh, at one point the whalers band together and pool all of their cannons into ships, uh, of which Porter still uh, is able to take them all on. Uh, and it isn't until those uh, those two ships, the Phoebe and the Cherub, I believe, that that trap him in Valparaiso. Um, and overall, he's captured uh, in the end of it. Uh, the monetary value I have written down uh, is he's able overall to capture about 20 ships and at the time did about $2.5 million in damage, um, which I guess uh, inflation today is several hundred million dollars, um, as well as, you know, just striking fear into the, the British whaling fleet at the time. And that increases insurance rates oh, yes. and that affects not only the insurers, but the merchants as well. And then the people back home will pay more for goods and want the war to end. And it's all connected. Interesting. As we move forward to riverine combat in the Seminole War, specifically, that's the Second Seminole War? It is, specifically What's What's special about the Second Seminole War? Uh, A lot of things. Um, The Seminole Wars, of of all the Native American wars, it's the longest, it's the most bloodiest, and it's... It was about seven years. I think it was... For the second one, I believe. Yeah, I think it was Uh, about seven years, or almost seven years, and it was the longest uh, of our wars until Afghanistan. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, the, the terrain of Florida is, is abysmal. You know, there's swamps and bayous and, you know, mosquitoes. And there's, there's these, all these isolated forts everywhere that we're trying to use to control the, the, the Seminole Indians. And uh, the Army has kind of their first try, and it's moderately successful. And ultimately, the Army comes to the Navy, and they say, hey, you know, we, we need a dedicated, you know, riverine shallow draft force uh, to do this. Uh, and uh, and the Navy steps up with these, you know, these small barges and these small kind of sailing ships. And it is a combined Marine operation as well. Uh, it's the Second Seminole Wars is probably more important to the Marines than it is to the Navy. Um, Why is that? The Marines haven't really fought a big action since the War of 1812. Uh, Andrew Jackson, during this time as president, he's talking about, you know, why do we have this second army is what he says, right? Um, what is the point of funding these two forces? And uh, at the time, the Marines are the commandant is Colonel uh, Archibald Henderson, the grand old man of the Corps. And uh, he's, a, he's the longest serving. The, the longest serving commandant of the Marine Corps. For about 30, 35 years. Something like that, right? Yeah, it, it's an extreme amount of time. And it's his idea that, you know, this is a maritime infantry force. This is a maritime environment. This is 
tailor-made for us. Uh, yeah, and the, it takes several hundred Marines south. And they, they, they have to collect them from all the different barracks all, all around the, the East Coast. And, yes. and I think, if I recall, I was at the National Archives in D.C. going through some of these old letters. And I, I'm pretty sure I came across one letter from Archibald Henderson, who's about to undertake his mission and says, you know, the war will be short. I'll be back in a few weeks. And, of yep. course, it goes on for another five, six years. Right. Um, but Jackson had already attempted to merge the two, the Army and the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. in 1834. Yes. So this is so what you're suggesting is this this is really a validation that the Marine Corps had to be separate from the yes. Army. Uh, which is a common theme throughout the history of the Marine Corps is—, is and. I mean, all the way up, you could argue, to the revolt of the admirals in, in 48, 1948, that people are still asking this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, why do we have this second force? And uh, so the Marines are always striving uh, a lot of new innovations, and whether it be in, in technology or combat, um, but all along the line sometimes of, of maritime or regular warfare, looking at an idea a different way. Were the, so this is a, a time for the, the Riverine operations in the Second Seminole War where it's really junior officers who are who are leading the charge because yes. there's a small craft, so you need more junior officers. Yes. Uh, and then the uh, the man that actually founds this, they, they end up calling themselves the Mosquito Fleet, um, which is actually a term that's actually been used a lot of different times in, in American history. Yeah, it was used by uh, David uh, it was used by David Porter in the Caribbean yes, with Shallow Draft when, in the 1820s when he was chasing the pirates. And I suspect, uh, and many of them are, are veterans of that uh, of that action. So I, I, I know they just they just kind of use the same thing. Um, but the founding member is, one of the founding members who really takes it off is Lieutenant John McLaughlin. Um, and there was, there was attempts before to make it. He's not the first one by any means, but really he's the one that kind of pioneers this force. Uh, and brings it all together. And he is very unique in the Navy in that he, he served prior. He served a, a tour on the ground with the Army. In fact, in fact he was actually wounded um, fighting the Seminoles. And so it's really this idea that he brings together this, this Navy, Marine Corps, Army force um, that are operating together. So what, they're, so what they're doing is really joint operations yes. during the Second Seminole War. And this is also, it's not the first time that steamships are used in warfare, but oh. Andrew Jackson di- does send two or three steamboats mm-hmm. from Norfolk down to support uh, Army operations for logistics. Yes. Yeah. Riverine warfare, uh, you know, th- there seemed to be a dedicated force during the Second Seminole War, but that disappears after mm-hmm. the Second Seminole War, correct? Yes. And then it reemerges. Yes. And when is uh, that? I would say, uh, I would argue the Civil War uh, is really where it, it reemerges. And in fact, a lot of the officers that served in the Mosquito Fleet during the Second Seminole War uh, come back and they, uh, they're the ones that found this. John Rogers uh, uh, takes part in the... Uh, the fighting in the Second Seminole War, and he is the one that is sent over by the Navy to to start the Mississippi River Squadron. This is the son of Commodore John Rogers the son from of the Commodore War. John okay. Rogers, now there's yes. a long line. There's about 100 years <laughs> a hundred years of Rogers. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so what do they do during the Civil War? When what are some operations that they use for riverine operations? Uh, very a lot of very famous ones. Uh, I mainly talk about Vicksburg. Um, Vicksburg is one of my favorite campaigns. Uh, I really talk, I really harp on the joint nature of riverine combat. Um, riverine combat is, it's complicated, but it's also not. Um, your enemy knows where you're coming, right? The river's right there. And if you're ambushed on the river, you can go forward and you can go back. Those are your two options, right? And so you, you need this very, very strong um, independent force, but also that acts in conjunction um, with land forces. And so you have eventually, it starts with Admiral Foote, and it eventually moves to David Dixon Porter, 
um, that command this Mississippi River squadron. Um, but they proceed down. Um, they do Fort uh, Donaldson, uh, and they're, they're linked up with General Grant's army. Um, one of the very first kind of major victories for the Union is Grant in conjunction with this Mississippi River squadron. Uh, and as they continue down, all the way down to Island Number 10 uh, is, is the next kind of big battle, which is this, this double bend in the river, which any riverine officers cringe whenever they hear double bend, right? Because the currents tend to pick up. You have to slow down, though. Your enemy can hit you from all sides. And so they, they it's not like you can get like several ships lying abreast in a river, especially in that area. Yes, especially with that current. And in fact, even at Island Number 10, they try and actually dig a canal just around it, um, but they're not able to dig anything deep enough. And so it's eventually they come up with the idea to just run past the batteries uh, just as fast as you can go uh, and then attack it from the rear. And this strategy is used again um, uh, at Vicksburg, uh, which is arguably one of the most important cities in the Confederacy, at least on the Mississippi River. Why is that? Uh, so you have New Orleans at the bottom. New Orleans is one of the largest cities in the Confederacy, obviously very important for trade. Um, and after that's taken by, uh, by Farragut, um, Vicksburg is kind of left as, uh, even Jefferson Davis says, Vicksburg is the key. Uh, Vicksburg is the uh, is what holds the two halves of the South together, and so Vicksburg becomes the only city left on the Mississippi River that can get troops, supplies, cattle, horses, food from uh, particularly Texas and Arkansas, which which are just massive, massive Confederate territories, um, and the you know the Confederate states proper over on the East Coast are depending on the supplies, and so if Vicksburg falls, you you can essentially cut the South in half. Were there any riverine operations? We, we, you're talking about the Mississippi River system, but what about on the East Coast? Were there any special ops or maritime regular warfare? There are uh, less on the war, regular warfare side. Um, the only uh, thing I can, one I can think of off the top of my head is probably Will Cushing. Oh, yes. I do talk about Will Cushing a lot. Um, who, I, who was he? <laughs> Will Cushing is a very interesting individual. Aside from being kicked out of the Naval Academy. Yes, yes. Uh, he, is, he is kicked out of the Naval Academy his, uh, his first year, second semester, for buffoonery and failing Spanish, I believe. Um, and, uh, I think, was it Gideon? I think the Secretary of the Navy or some, somebody else had, had asked why was he kicked out for a, for a course that didn't deal with gunnery or seamanship yes. and navigation. And if you look at his scores, he's very high in gunnery and things like that. But it's clear that other things that things such as discipline and all these other extra military duties he did not take very seriously a big prankster but either way he's kicked out shortly before um uh shortly before the war begins and once it begins uh he actually gets a recommendation from one of his uh officers that was here to be reinstated he goes right up to the secretary of the navy and he's ultimately reinstated uh he is this this character um that's very very hard to uh, describe there's a I've heard some books call him the first frogman, right? The very first Navy SEAL. Um, and if you read anything about him, it, it's he's this larger-than-life personality. He's usually a university beloved. Um, but there is a um, there is a Civil War ironclad on the river, and the um, the name is escaping the, me. The Albemarle. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. because he's because no, at this point, by the time that the Albemarle mission is happening, Will Cushing has been uh, tested time and again. He keeps volunteering for yes. missions to the point where they're trying to figure out what to do with the Albemarle, and I think it's Lincoln who has seen he and he and Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, have been seeing all these reports from Lieutenant Will Cushing, and they just say, 
send Cushing. Yes. And What's uh, the so the Albemarle is an, is an ironclad, and where's it located? Uh, it's on the Roanoke River, um, uh, or around Roanoke, or is it Cape Fear River? It's in North Carolina. Right. Um, I have it written down somewhere. But um, so it's this ironclad that's kind of wreaking havoc on ships. And uh, so he, he gets the idea to, to get essentially a steam powered rowboat, a very just a very small steamship. Uh, he loads it up with a crew with the Navy, uh, some Navy sailors. And his idea is uh, he's going to take a spar torpedo, which is essentially a, a harpoon with a bomb at the end of it, essentially. Uh, and he's going to go as fast as he can go. Um, he goes over these these barriers that they've erected around it. What were the barriers? Um, they were meant uh, basically to stop boats from yeah. getting there. Like logs. Like logs. Logs right? and logs and chains. Yes, and they had been there for so long, they had got moss over them. And so his boat sails over this, uh, and he throws this spar torpedo, and it blows a hole in the side of the ironclad, uh, and it goes down. Uh, his ship is incinerated. His crew members are thrown in every direction. Uh, many of them are captured. Um, a couple are killed, but he's able to escape. He, he, uh, he's able to swim down river and eventually make it out. What uh, happens to the Elmer Mole? Uh, it sinks. Uh, it's, uh, it, it eventually go. It doesn't fully sink, just the draft of the water is not enough, but it's, it's almost a near-complete loss. Um, and there's so many stories of Will Cushing. He, he goes behind enemy lines to attempt to kidnap a Confederate general. It's ultimately unsuccessful, but he leaves a letter behind to uh, you know, prove that he was there. Um, and I, I eventually talk, uh, talk about him a lot um, when we get to the amphibious assault lecture as well. And he's buried right up here at Hospital Point at the Naval Academy Cemetery. Yes. Does riverine, this, this sense of riverine combat or spe- special operations, for lack of a better term, uh, does that go by the wayside after the Civil War? Unfortunately, it does. And, and if you study the history of the United <clears throat> States, riverine combat grows in a time of need. And when it's not needed, it goes away. And those skills sometimes are uh, you know, a trite over time. And then there's a new conflict, and it comes back, and then it Every, goes away. And then everybody has to relearn all the same lessons that they learned in the previous war. Yes. Um, let's turn to Germany and what they were doing during the First World War in terms of maritime or regular warfare. And there's a, you have a lot of examples in yes. here. Uh, let's start off with the auxiliary cruise, auxiliary. Cruisers. Yes. Uh, and so at this part in my syllabus, I, uh, I've been thinking about this class for a while. I tried to do it chronologically, and I just couldn't. And so eventually that first lecture gets into case studies. And so I, I do Germany during World War One and World War Two mm-hmm. specifically. Um, but they use this tactic uh, of auxiliary cruisers, and these are essentially merchantmen. Uh, and they've cut holes out of the side. They make concealable guns, uh, four or five-inch guns. Uh, they have covert mining racks. They've got torpedo tubes. They've got aircraft that they can launch the scout. Um, these seaplanes that can land in the water and they can during World War One. Uh, oh, during World War Two. Okay, right? sorry. Yes, yes. But I mean, similar, very, mm-hmm. very similar tactic they use during World War One. Um, I really focus on the World War Two auxiliary cruisers. Um, but they, these are these are wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, they uh, they're meant to to make it through British blockade, go out to the high seas disguised as a merchantman. You know, come alongside another merchant and just open up with their guns. Uh, and it's a overall, it's, a, it's an extremely effective tactic. There's not a lot of them to make a difference during the war, um, but the, the British are forced to expend an, an inordinate amount of resources to, to find these ships and to make, you know, to, 
even crazier is, you know, they would make uh, movable smokestacks, right? So they could change the profile of this. They had photos of other British merchant ship that they would disguise themselves as. Uh, and so it's this, they repaint themselves at sea. So it's this, it's this hide and seek game that they're constantly playing during the wars. It's almost what you see today in terms of, uh, say, illegal fishing ships or other illicit traffickers yes. on the high seas. What else were the Germans using? You mentioned um, uh, Operation Creek. Uh, Creek very uh, it was only recently declassified in like the 70s there's a there's a movie about it called the sea wolves Um, but right when World War II begins um, the allies particularly in India and you know the British are worried so much about losing India during the second world war uh, they are beginning to take inordinate amount of U-boat losses to U-boats which to them is interesting right Uh, the Germans have a squadron of submarines operating in the Indian Ocean called the monsoon group and uh, it's just physically so far away from Germany. It should be a logistical nightmare for the Germans to operate this squadron, and which would make it even harder for them to get ships. And they are sinking British ships left and right. And they're, they have no idea how they're able to do it. And eventually, they come to realize that there's, there's two German and an Italian ship that is interred in Goa, India. And Goa, India is a Portuguese colony. Uh, it's it's a, literally, it's just this city that uh, Portugal owns in uh, in India. And so they're neutral during the war. And so this, these ships are seeking shelter in this neutral harbor. And they eventually discover through intelligence that there is a covert radio antenna inside one of these boats that is relaying coordinates for British ships. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a big issue with sending troops into a neutral territory. You know, are we going to blow up these ships? What are mm-hmm. we going to do? Um, at the time, the British SOE is really getting on its foot. The, what was the SOE? The Special Operations Executive, um, kind of the covert arm of, of British intelligence. And they have a couple assets in India, but it, it's nowhere near like they have it in Europe. And so they turn to this unit called the Calcutta Light Horse. And it was a reservist unit. Um, it was guys that played a lot of polo. They drank a lot of gin and tonics. When they were supposed to be drilling, they did a lot of uh, just just goofed off a lot. And they were they were like stockbrokers and and uh, real estate agents. And they were older. You know, there were forties, fifties, and there were people that were content that the war had passed them by. And uh, one of these SOE agents knows the commanding officer of this, and they come together with this plan to recruit these reservists. Uh, this unlikely group to basically penetrate into neutral Goa, board this ship at night, blow it up, uh, and then extract and act like nothing happened. And uh, long story short, they do do that. They, they board this ship in the middle of the night. They kill some of the crew members. They set charges. They blow up the ship. And uh, the other remaining German and Italian ships are so scared that they're next, they end up scuttling themselves. So they get all three in the end, uh, and they just fade back into the darkness. And it doesn't come out into the 70s that they actually did this. That's pretty impressive. Uh, why do you include uh, battles of Fort Fisher, Gallipoli, and Dieppe as, as maritime irregular warfare subjects? So one of the big things, another big thing I get in this class is uh, sometimes— Warfare that we consider today as, as yeah, duh, like that, an aircraft carrier, like, yeah, that's amphibious assault. That's conventional warfare. It didn't always start off that way. Uh, it started off as theory. It started off as, as wild ideas that maybe we could deploy, you know, a large troop concentration to invade a beachhead, right? And so today, again, we, we, 
we it's it's considered fact that this is part of our lexicon of warfare. But uh, I specifically highlight Fort Fisher uh, during the American Civil War, Gallipoli during the First World War, and Dieppe during the Second World War uh, as these amphibious failures. Um, they are just these massive failures on multiple different levels. And in many cases, especially with Gallipoli, uh, particularly Europe, are convinced that the amphibious assault cannot be a thing. Uh, if your enemy is on the beach, if they're at the water's edge defending it, uh, it doesn't matter how many troops you throw, it just cannot be done. And uh, so I really want to highlight that, you know, we take for granted Marine Corps amphibious assault during World War II. Um, but really, it, it took a while to get there. And, um, and for that, um, I, I use this book called uh, At the Water's Edge. Um, it's on the Commandant Marine Corps leading, reading list, one of my favorites. Um, but basically, he writes about amphibious assault from the defender's perspective. And his main argument is, you know, we keep claiming amphibious assault is so hard. But if you look at the history of it, we are overwhelmingly successful versus the failures. But the failures that we have in history are very, very bad failures. In terms of failure, here's the one during the beginning of World War II, or should say the British had already been fighting during World War II was the Battle of Toronto. Mm -hmm. Toronto is T-A-R-A-N-T-O, not uh, Toronto as in Canada. But what is it that the British do at Toronto in Italy? Uh, At Toronto, they they use something that had been around for a while, but no one really credited it with being a frontline unit, and that is the aircraft carrier. Um, they, they're, they're, they have an aircraft carrier. It was meant to be the forward scout for the battleships. You know, they'll send out these aircraft, they'll radio report where the enemy fleet is, and then they'll correct for gunfire spotting. And that was it. Uh, and so the fleet air arm of the British at the time is, is really lacking behind. And so the Italian fleet position at Toronto uh, is in a perfect position to cut off the British connection to the Suez Canal. Um, but they've become a fleet in being, uh, which is... You know, they're a force that's just not leaving port. It's a fearsome, scary fleet, but they're never leaving port, but they're still forcing the British to have an inordinate amount of assets in the area just to keep them there. And they want to get a way to get at these Italian uh, battleships that are in port. And uh, the uh, Al, uh, Admiral Cunningham, who's uh, the in charge of the, the Mediterranean fleet, um, decides to do this aircraft carrier strike. And he's using a swordfish uh, bomber. Which what was it, a swordfish? It was a, if you look at it and you're like, there's no way that's from World War I, but it's this biplane, right? Uh, very, very slow, could carry one torpedo, uh, a two-man crew, something straight out of World War I. Um, and so they come up with this, this operation to, to fly through this massive uh, anti-aircraft fire barrage uh, to drop torpedoes that will go under these, tor- these anti-torpedo nets that they've placed around the ships uh, to defend against submarines. Uh, and they do it, and it's wildly successful. Um, these, uh, these, there's a, several Italian battleships are sunk or knocked out of action, um, and it's just this w- more successful than they've ever thought possible. And then I actually titled that lecture uh, um, the next day. They're like they're talking to the pilots, and they say, "Well, congratulations, this was a great raid. We're going to do it again, uh, same place, same strategy." And the pilots look at each other and they go, "Well, they only asked the light brigade to do it once." <laughs> um, and I think it's a perfect example of this new piece of technology uh, that starts off as irregular and it's eventually adopted and made mainstream. And there was a, a U.S. naval officer who was present on one of the British ships, mm-hmm. or he may have been on uh, Furious, I can't remember, but Lieutenant Commander Obie, I forget what his first name was. But he ends up writing a report on the Battle of Toronto and this entire strike, and it makes its way back to D.C. I'm not sure if it ever made it to 
the Pacific Fleet. Yes. Because Toronto is what a year, year and a, it's a year and a half before Pearl, before Harbor? Pearl Harbor. And uh, and I never heard of that report, but the report I do know is the Japanese naval attaché writes a report, and that goes right back to the Japanese because Navy. because they were at they were at Toronto as well. Yes. So both sides are reporting. One actually takes advantage of it. Yes, the Japanese and with cataclysmic consequences, as we know for us. And I think the I think one of the issues was the the reports that were coming back. Some of the senior admirals were saying, well, you know, the. Pearl Harbor is too shallow right. to accept some of the torpedoes, so it could never happen. And you always have to wonder, whenever they say it could never happen, right. you know that Something's that's wrong. probably going to be the next thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, World War II also is the introduction of the underwater demolition teams. Yes. How, yes. how do they come about? Um, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot. I actually start with the Italians. Uh, I argue that the Italians, uh, 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 Decima Maz, uh, which is kind of like this uh, number 10 assault squadron is their name. And they are really the pioneers of, of the frogman, right? This is the combat diver. Um, the guys that, you know, they swim with a bomb strapped to their chest, they swim under a ship, and they plant a, a limpet mine, a magnetic mine, and they swim away before it blows up. And the Italians really, really um, take off with this idea. Uh, they They create Suicide boat is the wrong term, but it's essentially a boat that's packed with explosives and they jump off at the very last moment uh, and it slams into ships in, uh, in Crete and it disables a, uh, and it sinks a heavy cruiser. And I think there's one of the one of those uh, suicide subs, if yeah, you will, yeah. at the, the Imperial War Museum. Uh, I'm sure they're in, in well. England. So they they do the boats, but they also do the human torpedoes, right. which is yeah. And so oh, the human the human torpedoes are are less about. Um, they don't crash the torpedo into them. The, the the charges have been removed. It's mainly just like a horse that they're that they're using to get in there, and uh, they do this very successful attack on Alexandra Harbor, um, planting mines to Queen Elizabeth and uh, one other ship, uh, heavily damaging them. Um, and so they really pioneer this, and the British really take off with it. Um, uh, which eventually forms into the Special Boat Squadron, which is still around today. Uh, and, uh, and then they kind of translates to, to our underwater demolitions teams that we have here in the United States. How, how uh, large was, were the UDT uh, teams initially? Initially, they started off with just about 180 people. Um, they're, they're, they're founded by uh, Lieutenant Draper Kaufman. Uh, he Naval gr- Academy graduate. Naval Academy graduate, uh, but didn't commission. Um, he... Uh, he Graduates from the Naval Academy, but his eyes uh, start to fail him. Uh, so he gets a job as a uh, working on a merchant ship uh, during the 30s, and he sees uh, the rise of Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. and he knows something's on the horizon. Uh, he joins the French as an ambulance driver. Uh, he's eventually captured, but makes it back to the uh, makes it back to England, and he makes it back right in the middle of the Battle of Britain. And uh, you know, there's bombs dropping everywhere all over London, and a lot of these bombs aren't going off. Uh, he's he's given a commission in the uh, in the Royal Navy Bomb Disposal Unit, and so he learns a lot about disposing of bombs and things like that. And uh, and then fast forward to Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor happens right. The Pacific Fleet is annihilated. And there's a lot of bombs that just don't go off. And, you know, we put out a call. Is there anyone that knows how to, how to Americans that know how to disarm bombs? And, you know, here's Draper Kaufman walks in. And he, he's actually awarded, I believe, the Navy Cross uh, for his bomb disposal efforts post uh, Pearl Harbor. And things really ramp up when Tarawa happens. And when the Marines hit Tarawa, 
Um, they are lacking hydrographic reconnaissance, so they don't know uh, what the beach looks like, what the tides look like. Very important, what the gradient is of the sand, right? Can tanks go up this beach, right, without, you know, foundering in the sand? Um, the Marines hit this, this, this reef uh, that's off the coast of Tarawa, and they're forced to wade ashore in, in three feet of water while they're under fire by the Japanese, and, and they take horrendous casualties. Um, Tarawa lasts only three days, but they take the same amount of casualties as the six months on Guadalcanal. And uh, they eventually realized we need a unit that could swim ashore, you know, take sand samples, take hydrographic reconnaissance, and then right before the Marines hit the beach, blow up these obstacles, right? And so they kind of say, well, disarming bombs, maybe it's similar to like planning one. And so they put out a call to form these these underwater demolition teams. And those eventually become the Navy SEALs as we know them they, today. They do eventually become the Navy SEALs, yes. What do you think the biggest lessons from your the course that you've taught and developed on maritime and regular warfare what are the some of the historical lessons we should know about for today definitely um the number one thing i I always talk about is leadership Uh, and a lot of these are small unit leadership you know will cushing goes up he's a lieutenant commander by the end of the war um draper kaufman's a lieutenant jg a lieutenant uh john paul doan's a lieutenant right um and uh or not a lieutenant, but, you know, still very junior, right? And sometimes, and I always try and harp on this with the midshipmen, um, just because you're the junior guy in the room doesn't mean that you don't have a, a good idea. You, you can attack this from a different angle, and you can analyze history, you know, throughout, you know, especially in the maritime environment of, of these new tactics or old tactics applied a different way or new technology or old technology applied a new way. Uh, and that's the biggest takeaway from this. I, I really designed this to be a, a strategy and tactics course. Do we do maritime or regular warfare today? We do. Uh, we, we do quite a bit. And uh, another big um, drive for me to create this course was um, was talking, uh, Admiral Grady talked about uh, the Navy SEALs, right? And the term he used was rebluing. And he says the Navy SEALs have been fighting for so long in Afghanistan and all these other places that they've forgotten to be this maritime force, right? They've forgotten that, that they're in the Navy. And he wants to re-blue them. And that comes out right around the same time as the Commandant General Berger, the new Commandant Marine Corps' new planning guidance. And where he writes basically the same thing, that the Marines have, you know, for the last 20 years, this is an anomaly, that Marines are that the Navy is supporting the Marines. And for as long as there's been a Marine Corps, they have supported the Navy mission. And he wants to bring the Marines to that. And so kind of along the lines of that, I, I, I didn't want to turn this into like just a counterterrorism class where, you know, they grow up with, you know, the Navy mm-hmm. SEALs doing all these cool raids. What maritime regular warfare is, is it is those things, but it's in support of a larger campaign, like a larger naval operation. And I wanted to say that it's not its own thing. It, it supports this larger mission and the overall plan of the fleet, um, which is why uh, I have a movie day in there and uh, I have The Longest Day. Which mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, that's that's about a conventional amphibious assault. One of my favorite movies in the world. It's got a lot of special operation forces, the, the paratroopers, the the French naval commandos, and they're all doing these operations to support the larger mission of the amphibious assault. And it all adds together. And that's really the the thing I wanted to get to my midshipmen. Are there any books you'd recommend about maritime irregular warfare? Yes, there are uh, too many, too many to name. Um, uh, I love, uh, again, uh, Commander Armstrong, Benjamin Armstrong's Small Boats and Daring Men, um, just released um, very, very recently. About two, three months ago. Two, three months ago. Um, another one uh, I read a lot, a lot is um, 
David Kilcullen's Out of the Mountains. So that's currently the book my students are reading as we speak. They should be reading them. Um, but uh, where it talks a lot about maritime terrorism and the growth of how the world is becoming more urban, more connected with technology, and uh, more maritime, more littoral. And you know the, the possibilities of irregular warfare to support the fleet operation today is, is only growing. Um, there's, there's just so many books out there. Great. Yes. Kai, thanks for coming over to Preble Hall. Really yes. appreciate it. hope you have a great weekend. Yes. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us again for this episode. If you like the episode and the series, please feel free to express yourselves on, on uh, iTunes and other platforms where it's available. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.